All right, we are engaging in a study of the biblical covenants together in Sunday school. We have looked at uh, the Noahic covenant. We've looked at the Abrahamic covenant. We have looked at the old covenant, the Davidic covenant. And now we've been considering together for some time the new covenant. And we are drawing actually to a close. A few more Sunday school lessons and we will be done with our study in the book that we have been going through which is from the Garden of Eden to the glory of heaven, a study of the biblical covenants. And so we have been talking about the fact that a covenant uh, is made with a person and the community that flows out of that person. So the covenant was made with Noah and it was made with the community that was related to Noah, namely all of those that were on the ark and all of their descendants. And then, of course, God made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham and also with his descendants, physical and spiritual. He made a covenant with David and his sons, uh, the ultimate and final son of whom, of course, was Jesus Christ. And then we see that uh, the new covenant is made with... God's people with with the church, okay? We are the covenant community. Christ is our covenant head. Uh, God made a covenant with him and with the community that flowed out of him, namely uh, the new covenant church. So uh, just like the Abrahamic covenant was implemented vis-a-vis the old covenant in the nation of Israel, so the new covenant is implemented uh, vis-a-vis the covenant community of the church. And so the implementation of the new covenant in this age is through the church. And there is, of course, the universal church, which is uh, made up of all people who are truly regenerate and born again, uh, all of God's elect who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, that universal church finds its expression in the local church. And so the local church is the visible new covenant community. And so we saw from Ephesians chapter 2 that while God saves people as individuals, as soon as he saves an individual, he places him into the covenant community of the church. And so we saw that we're no longer uh, aliens and strangers, but we are now members of the household of God. And so we saw that the church at Corinth was a body of Christ and members uh, it had in particular, individual people. And so the local church bears the image of the universal church. Now, that being the case, since the uh, church is the implementation of the new covenant, we would expect that those who uh, make up the universal church are also members of the new covenant. Therefore, Those who make up the local church are also members of the new covenant. Now, turn in your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 8. And I want to just review with you for a moment the terms of the new covenant. Hebrews chapter 8. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 10, after describing the weakness and the unprofitability of the old covenant and why it had to be done away with, Hebrews 8 and verse 10, 
Um, God says, quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Now notice the terms. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. So no longer is the law of God going to be external to the people of God. It's going to be internalized through a transformation of their hearts. So this speaks of regeneration. Okay, God's going to regenerate our hearts and make our hearts not enmity against God's law, but delight in the law of God after the inward man. And then he says, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least unto the greatest. So God promises to have a personal relationship with us, with every one of us. There is not one person in the new covenant who does not know the Lord. From the very least that is in the covenant community, the very greatest that's in the covenant community, every one of them are saved. Every one of them know the Lord. They don't just know about the Lord. They know the Lord. And in John 17, 3, Jesus said, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So, um, uh, when it says, for example, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and brought forth a son. He didn't just know about his wife. He knew her. And in the same way, when we know the Lord, we don't just know about him. We have a personal, intimate, spiritual relationship with him that constitutes salvation. So he says, they're going to be my people and I'm going to be their God. And the nature of this relationship is not going to be like with old covenant Israel, where I'll be their God. If they obey my commandments, they don't obey my commandments. I won't be their God. Uh, that was the weakness and the unprofitability of the old covenant, because while God kept his end of the bargain, uh, Israel never kept her into the bargain. So here God says that there's no need to evangelize the covenant community. Verse 11, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord. You remember the Old Testament prophets spent all their time evangelizing the old covenant community because the vast majority of them weren't saved. Well, there's no need to evangelize the new covenant community because every one of them are saved. Okay. Now notice, not only does he have uh, regeneration for us and a relationship with us, but then verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses and their sins and their iniquities. Will I remember no more? There's redemption. So there's regeneration, there's relationship, and there is uh, redemption. Okay, these are the three great promises of the old covenant. Now, they're not the only promises, okay, but they are three of the central ones. And we saw as we studied the old covenant, strike that, we saw as we studied the new covenant in the Old Testament that there's lots more than this, but there's certainly this, all right? So what do we know about the new covenant community? We know that they all have regenerate hearts. We know that they all have a personal relationship with the Lord. And we know that they're all forgiven of their sins without exception. None of them needs to be saved. They already all are saved. So if those are the people who make up the universal church, the new covenant community, what would we expect of the local church? 
It's supposed to be a reflection of the universal church. Therefore, the only people that are admitted into the membership of the local church are the same kind of people who are admitted to the membership of the universal church, namely those who have regenerate hearts, those who know the Lord, and those whose sins and iniquities have been forgiven. And that's why we only admit saved people into the new covenant community, visible body, namely the local church. Because the local church is to exhibit the character of the new covenant community as it is described in scripture. And so the local church must conform to the terms of the new covenant as to its membership and as to its behavior. Of course, if you're in the new covenant, then you delight in the law of God after the inward man. You want to keep God's word and do God's will. And you're always rejoicing in the fact that your sins and your iniquities have been forgiven. And you're constantly cultivating your walk with the Lord because you are in a relationship with the Lord. Okay. And so thus the behavior of the new covenant community is predicated upon its makeup. And its makeup, of course, is predicated upon the promises in terms of the new covenant. And so that's the reason why we only baptize professing believers in Jesus Christ. We don't baptize infants. Why? Because we have no reason to believe that infants are regenerate. They have a personal relationship with the Lord and their sins and inequities have been remembered no more. Okay. The only people of whom we can predicate that are those who have repented and believed in Christ their Savior. For there is sal neither is there salvation any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So how do we know if someone is saved? We know because they have repented and they have believed in Christ. And those are the terms upon which people are saved. And so the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Catholics... Um, the vast majority of Christendom does baptize infants and does bring them into the new covenant community. Uh, but that's really a violation of what the new covenant itself uh, sets forth. Only saved people who know the Lord are to be admitted to local church membership and only saved people who know the Lord uh, therefore are to be baptized, which is the door of entrance into uh, the new covenant local church. Now we did look at some passages in relationship to that. We looked at Acts chapter two and um, we looked at Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. So who are you to baptize? Disciples. What's a disciple? A self-conscious follower of Jesus Christ. On the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of their sins. And the text goes on to say that uh, then all they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto him about 3,000 souls. So the promise of salvation is given to everyone. It's given to um, the unsaved. It's given to the children of the unsaved. It's given to those who are far off, the Gentiles. Uh, it's given to everyone. If they will repent, if they will believe, they too can have the remission of sins. So the point is, is that um, when there was a, a consideration as to who should be brought into the new covenant church, um, there was always the question, 
is this person a disciple? You remember when Saul of Tarsus saved on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, and he wanted to join himself to the church at Jerusalem, uh, they wouldn't receive him into the membership. Why? Because they didn't think he was a disciple. And as soon as they ascertained that indeed he was a disciple, then they did bring him into uh, the membership of the church. Now, that brings us then to the new material that we want to cover today. And that has to do with the second great ordinance of the new covenant community. Now, the old covenant community had our ordinances, didn't it? Had the temple, sacrifices, priesthood, holy days, fast days, feast days. Those are all the ordinances of the old covenant. And of course, the mark of entrance into that covenant community was circumcision, right? Well, the new covenant community also has her ordinances, but only two. And the two ordinances we have are baptism, which we've just got done discussing at some length. And the second ordinance we have is um, the Lord's Supper. And of course, baptism is to be administered once uh, as an initiatory rite. And then, of course, the Lord's Supper is to be observed over and over and over again as an ongoing means of grace for the people of God. It's just like circumcision was something that was done once and then it was never done again. And um, but Passover is something that they observed every year, year after year after year. And so we have uh, our ordinance of baptism, which occurs once. We have the Lord's Supper, which occurs um, again and again and again. So let's talk then about um, the new covenant and what the new covenant is is all about. Um, and, And in relationship to the Lord's Supper. Now, in every passage that records the Last Supper, this concept that the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper is the seal of the New Covenant is expressly declared. Now, turn your Bibles, please, to um, uh, Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew 26, verse 27. We'll start out at verse 26, Matthew 26, 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, if you're using the King James like I am, uh, you know that the word there is New Testament. And the, um, the word testament and covenant are translations of the single Greek word, which is the word um, diatheke. And so when you run across the word testament, you can just substitute the word covenant. Uh, They both convey uh, the same uh, idea and concept. And so there's only one word that's translated ever, covenant or um, uh, testament in the New Testament, and that is uh, this word diatheke. So um, then Mark chapter 14. So we've seen Matthew 26, 27. He took the cup and gave thanks said to them, drink all of it, for this is the blood of the new covenant. And then Mark chapter 14, verse 24. 
Mark 14, 24. Uh, we'll start out at verse 22. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them, saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup when he had given thanks and he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And then the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, um, in verse 19, our memory verse for today, Luke 22, 19. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul teaches on the Lord's Supper. In verse 25, well, we'll start at verse 23 again. Um, 1 Corinthians 11:23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do ye as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show or preach or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's our memory verse for this week. All right, so in every passage that records the Lord's Supper, and you notice I didn't turn to the Gospel of John? It's because the Lord's Supper isn't in the Gospel of John. It's completely omitted. And there's reasons for that, and we're not going to go into those now. But every time it's mentioned, it's always a declaration of the new covenant. So in every passage that records the Last Supper, this concept that the Lord's Supper is the seal of the new covenant is expressly brought forth. Now, the word seal simply means a pledge or a promise that something is going to be done in the future. When we say that the Lord's Supper is the seal of the new covenant, um, what we mean is it's Christ's pledge or promise to us of something he's going to do in the future. You remember the rainbow was the seal of the Noahic covenant. What was that? It was the pledge or the promise that God was going to do something in the future, namely, never bring another flood, right? And keep the season steady and consistent. And so the Greek word for seal is the word erebon. And that's the word that the Greeks used for the engagement ring. You women, if you have an engagement ring on, okay, that was your husband's erebon. That was uh, your fiance's, I should say, seal to you or promise to you of, that he was going to do something in the future, that he was going to marry you. And so when a man gives a woman an engagement ring, it's his seal or pledge that he will fully complete and carry out his promise to marry her at some specified point of time in the future. And so this is what the Lord's Supper is. It's Christ's engagement ring to us, if you will. It's his pledge 
that the new covenant will be completely and fully carried out to the fullest extent of its terms in due time. And just as a woman who is engaged will look at her engagement ring and obtain comfort and anticipation that her fiance is going to marry her at some point in the future, so the Lord's Supper is Christ's engagement ring to us, that all that is promised in the new covenant will one day be fully accomplished for his people. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we're looking at Christ's promise that he's made to us in the new covenant that he is going to, at some point in the future, fulfill uh, to us and in us and for us all that he has promised in the new covenant, which, of course, is the complete application of all the promises of the new covenant, which include not only the perfect redemption of our bodies, but also the perfect redemption of the created universe and the new heavens and the new earth. We'll be with him forever in eternity where there will be no more death or sorrow or pain or crying uh, because the former things have passed away. Now, of course, once you get married, um, the engagement ring kind of loses its meaning because what it promised was accomplished. In fact, you can even get rid of it. You women just, just throw away your engagement rings. Just get rid of them. You don't need them anymore, right? Uh, But actually, what do you get when you get married? You get the wedding band, right? Okay. And, And what that is, is that's the promise and pledge that's been done. That what the engagement ring promised um, has been, in fact, completed and fulfilled. And so you don't need the promise anymore because you have the reality. And so in the same way, when Christ returns and the new covenant is completely fulfilled, the Lord's Supper will be done away. As our memory verse says, uh, we do preach or declare the Lord's death and all that he secured for us and all he promised to us in that death for how long? Until he comes. And then when he comes, everything he's promised will be fully conveyed and therefore we don't need uh, the sign of the promise anymore because we have the fulfillment of it. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, among the multitude of other things that ought to be crossing our minds as we celebrate that supper is that this is Christ's pledge and promise and seal to us that what he secured for us on the cross is going to be fully applied to us um, in due time when he returns. And so when he says regarding the Lord's Supper, this is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. You can personally sit there and look at the elements and say, these elements are Christ's promise that one day I will be fully cleansed from sin in my soul and in my body. And I will live in a world and among a people who are fully cleansed from sin. The curse will be gone and we will be in the new heavens and in the new earth with him uh, forever and ever and ever. And those are, are wonderful, wonderful promises. Now, obviously, um, it only makes sense that just like with baptism, only believers should be taking um, the Lord's Supper. Because what's promised in the Lord's Supper is only promised to believers. Okay? And that's why we ask unsaved people to not partake. And um, if they do partake, um, they're declaring a lie. They're saying they're members of the New Covenant community when they're not. And... um, They are um, partaking of privileges that they have no right to. 
And as a result, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, that the judgment of the Lord falls upon them. Now, I just want to say something very briefly about the elements. Um, the bread is supposed to be unleavened bread. I don't know where evangelicals in this day and age get off on the notion that they can have leavened bread in the Lord's Supper because it tastes better, but it's just flat wrong. And if you go to a church sometime and they serve communion and the bread's leavened, just pass it by. Don't take it because it's a defilement of the symbolism because leaven in scripture is a symbol of sin. And the express reason why unleavened bread is used uh, is, is, is symbolizes the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is without sin. And so uh, to have leaven in the bread is a defilement of the symbol. Uh, it would be like putting a swastika on the American flag and saying it's still the American flag. No, that's the wrong symbol to put on the flag, right? We have stars and stripes. And uh, so you don't defile the symbol because when you defile the symbol, you defile its meaning and its significance. With reference to the wine, um, the essence of the meaning of the wine is the crushing and bleeding of the grape. It is not the alcohol, okay? There's no need to have alcohol in the wine. Um, furthermore, alcohol is only produced through fermentation. Fermentation requires yeast. Yeast is a symbol of sin. That's why we don't have it in the bread. So it stands to reason we wouldn't have it in the wine. Uh, furthermore, there's practical considerations. Uh, there are people on parole who are not allowed to drink any amount of alcohol of any kind. There are people who are ex-alcoholics who don't need to be tasting alcohol. Uh, and the alcoholic part is not of the essence of the symbol at all and completely unnecessary to it. Therefore, um, we don't serve alcoholic wine. Now, if some church did, would that defile the symbol to the point that you shouldn't partake? Um, the issue of the yeast there is much more subtle. Um, I, um, I wouldn't condemn somebody if they did, but I wouldn't. Uh, so anyway, unleavened bread, unleavened wine... We call it wine simply because grape juice is called wine. Oinos in the New Testament is the Greek word. It can be used for either fermented or unfermented grape juice. The context always dictates. Um, I'm not saying alcohol is always wrong and evil in every circumstance. The um, Bible absolutely forbids drunkenness. Um, but uh, it certainly is not appropriate at the Lord's Supper where every believer is required to partake. And it's simply wrong to require any believer to partake of something uh, that is a Christian liberty in which they have the right to say no to. And many believers choose to say no to alcohol. That's perfectly uh, appropriate for them. Uh, and so therefore to impose it on them is, is, is simply wrong. So um, that then is, is the meaning of the Lord's Supper. I want to make one final comment and then we'll close. And that is, this is a corporate activity because what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's Supper is we're not only declaring our communion with the Lord Jesus, we're declaring our communion with each other. And that's why you don't ever take the Lord's Supper outside the context of a corporate local church meeting. Uh, the Lord's Supper isn't something that two believers get together and do um, in a living room on Thursday afternoon. And the reason why is because it's not a private ceremony. 
It is a corporate ceremony. It's a ceremony that belongs to the church. Uh, it's just like when the Jews had an animal sacrifice to do, uh, they were supposed to take it to the temple and the priest was supposed to do it and they were supposed to take it into the Holy of Holies and all of that, okay? They didn't just go out on the back lot and build their own altar and sacrifice their own animals. It wasn't, wasn't right. Um, and in the same way, the Lord's Supper uh, is not to be taken in private. It's made to be taken, as it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty. when you come together as the church, that's when uh, you take the Lord's Supper. And so it's a communion meal in the horizontal element among the members of the local church has great significance um, as well as the vertical uh, element. As to who should partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, since it's an ordinance that declares our union with the new covenant, anyone in the new covenant uh, certainly has a right to partake of the covenant community meal. Some people say, well, unless you're a member of a church, you can't partake. Uh, I simply don't believe that the Bible bears that. Um, I think that if someone has uh, been um, believed and been baptized, um, maybe they're between churches looking for a church. I certainly don't think they should be counted as not members of the covenant community because they're not members of a particular local church at that point in time now. If someone just persists in not being a member of any church for years on end, they've got a problem. But to say because you're in between or you're transitioning that therefore we're going to treat you uh, as not one of God's people, I think conveys the wrong message. And so thus we practice open communion. All right, so if you've been saved by grace through faith and the local church is the God-ordained place for you to experience the fulfillment of God's new covenant blessings, including the signs of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we don't ever want to divorce the concept of the covenant from the covenant community. And that's why if you say you're a Christian, then you need to be involved in the covenant community of the Christians, which is... Um, a biblically functioning local church. Okay? All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the blessings of the new covenant and these two wonderful ordinances you've given to us, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Father, we pray as we move into the contemplation of the ultimate expression of the new covenant and the new heavens and the new earth uh, next week that we might just really be filled with joy and excitement and anticipation and optimism about the fact that the best is yet to come. And Father, it just gets better. And so, Lord, we ask that um, you might just help us to always be thankful for and live in the light of the provisions and the blessings of the new covenant. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.